You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, you made it. For some, that means you got through Romans. And for some, that means you found a parking spot or maybe your small group or a chair. But you're here. And you're here with a whole lot of people that may or may not be the crowd that you usually would hang with on a Thursday night. But this is no ordinary Thursday night. Now, most of you have plotted through our Lenten study guide in Romans. It's a case for hope that Paul gives to the church in Rome. And the Roman church wasn't nearly as perfect as our church is today. It was made up of people that had differing opinions about politics and worship and how we live out our spiritual beliefs and practices in daily life. And and in Romans, Paul reminds us that we're all one family of a very loving God. We're called to God and to the community of faith. And we're sent by God as that community of faith. And as we see in Romans 5, we're not left on our own for this journey. But we have hope because God has given God's very own self and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been given one another. For hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So here we are. But I bet some of you are thinking, what am I doing here? And you wouldn't be the first disciple to ask that question. Because the upper room was full of people really who had no business being together on an ordinary Thursday night. And in fact, if you've ever looked at the cast of characters that Jesus pulls together to follow him, it's kind of a case study for what not to do in organizational leadership. To be fair, I'm not God. This would not be my gang. But here's what I know. Jesus breaks the rule for rules for healthy group dynamics by choosing people that by definition won't get along. In fact, I think they kind of hate each other. Hopefully your groups have gotten on better than that. But I just ask, have you ever thought about what the dynamics would have been like for the 12 disciples as they lived together for three years? First, you've got two sets of brothers, fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. The Gospels talk about Peter, James and John as Jesus's inner circle, a group of three to whom he was especially close. I wonder what that was like for Andrew. To have been left out of that inner circle. How did that impact his relationship with his brother Peter? Or James and John, his former partners in business? How did Andrew navigate that on the day-to-day? Or what about the tension between these fishermen and the tax collector Matthew, who gleefully overcharged them year after year, allowing himself to live large for their hard work? How long did it take before they even talked to him? Or sat by him. How hard was it for Matthew to look in their eyes as Jesus taught them about seeking first God's kingdom when for years he had built his own on the backs of their hard labor? How long did it take Peter to lay aside his hatred of Matthew and see him as a brother? Or what about Simon the Zealot who chafed under Rome's political power and longed to see it overthrown by force. How did he respond to Matthew, the puppet tax collector of the Roman Empire that he loathed? 
How did he respond when Jesus challenged him to trust in a kingdom that wasn't about overthrowing and would be established with love and peace and not war? Philip is a Greek name, and he may well have faced discrimination as a Hellenistic Jew or Greek Jew. And even decades later, by the time Paul writes Romans, that tension's still in the air. What was it like for Philip to have a name that identified him as an outsider? Did the others treat him differently? Did they keep him at arm's length or assume things about him because of his cultural ties? And then Judas Iscariot was probably, if you could have it, the 1% of first century Palestine. The only callus his hands likely knew was that of working a pen. Could there have been tension between him and the blue-collar fishermen? Did he hide behind airs of superiority because he felt insecure? To be fair, this group is a wreck. What strategist would put a high school dropout with jailbait, a dude from the wrong side of the tracks, a Harvard MBA, and a political time bomb in one community as a plan to save the world? They all seem so different, but not to Jesus. He knows what each of these people will have to lay, that they'll all have to lay something down to be part of this community, to belong to one another. Jesus' call on their lives means that their identity will no longer be found in what they were born into or what they've made with their hands or what they've made of themselves, and certainly not in political theories economic strategies or self-improvement. God always calls us to see beyond our differences, to the thing that unites us, this love that redefines us. We're God's beloved, all of us. And eventually that identity completely changes these disciples. By the time we get to the last gospel that's written, John's gospel, John doesn't even once refer to himself as John. He just calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. So changed is he in this process of becoming the one whom Jesus loves. That's why he's called the beloved disciple. And it's who we are too. But truthfully, we need to let go in order to become. So as we come into this place, this night, with this group of people you may or may not have chosen to be with, I invite you to a time of silent meditation to think on this question. What aspect of who you are is in the way of what God longs for you to be? What are you desperately holding on to that you need to put down in light of God's great love? Let's invite the poured out spirit of God to speak to our hearts. God, would you meet us in this place? Speak to our hearts that we may know you more fully. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law.
know, the wonder of God's love for us is that it absolutely changes us. But change is always a process. And this group of followers finds themselves around a table on this Passover night eating together. Now, considering where they've started, this is huge progress. Well, sort of. Because before they eat, they need to wash up. The tradition of foot washing went with a hospitality where people walked in dirt and filth all day. No paved roads, no public restrooms. So when they came into a home, it was proper to take off shoes and clean feet so as not to bring dirt from the street into the home, particularly if you're eating a meal on cushions and not sitting at a table with chairs. Foot washing was a lowly job, so much so that the task was really beneath a family member and was often delegated to a servant if possible. Now, as the disciples gather in the upper room to eat, nobody seems all that interested in putting themselves on this path of downward mobility. Maybe they're still carrying their errors and their insecurities after all. So Jesus gets up, takes off his outer robe, puts on a a towel around his waist, and he proceeds to wash their feet for them. How humiliating. Not for Jesus, but for the disciples. Their motivation for non-action comes to light before Jesus' selfless act of service. And they have to face the shame of their fears and insecurities before him. And as embarrassing as it is for them, he washes each man's feet. And when he's finished, you would think that Jesus would reprimand them. Or he would say, I've washed your feet, so you should wash mine. Because that's how we would respond. But as Jesus takes his place at the table, he insists, I've washed your feet. You should wash one another's feet. Wash each other's feet. Love one another. As Dave said, this is where Maundy Thursday gets its name from, this mandate, this commandment. But these are strange commandments, if you think about them. But truthfully, there's something about letting Jesus wash our feet that prepares us to be sent. I used to be part of a teaching team that would take students to South Africa every other January for a month-long course there. And the first time I went, I was so overwhelmed by the dirt and filth of the place, where we went, that I wore my socks and shoes everywhere. Now, if you know me, you know that I've already broken out my sandals because it's so warm out. And given that January in the U.S. is summer in Africa, the whole choice of socks and shoes for me was nothing but fear, pure fear. I wanted to protect myself. I did not want to be vulnerable. I had no idea what I was walking in, and I sure wasn't going to get any of that on me. That was until I reached this place called Itapini. Itapini means the place of the trash dump. And it's almost entirely populated with grandparents and children because most of the younger adults there have died of AIDS. And signs of malnutrition and disease were everywhere. Children played in dirty water. Children walked around without, or toddlers walked around without pants because there's no diapers to change into. And the hardest thing for me was to see these kids in bare feet walking on broken glass. And I thought, how long does it take 
for a kid's feet to get that tough, that they can walk on broken glass. It just broke my heart. And I wondered how long, how long this went on. Lord, how long will this go on? What, what do we do? It was overwhelming to me. I couldn't sleep. I walked around the hall all night in the place that we were staying. And the next day, I got up, and as soon as we were in the center of town, I bought a cheap pair of flip-flops. Shamed by the ways that I had let my fears protect me from the reality of the others that I encountered, I wanted my feet to get dirty with the stuff that they face every day. So I traveled to some of the poorest places and met some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. And my feet took forever to get clean after I get home. I think it was the flip-flops, to be honest. But, you know, I do it again tomorrow. In fact, I will do it again tomorrow. Not quite Africa. But that experience helped me understand that if we're honest, we all put on far more than socks and shoes to protect ourselves from the experiences of others. We wear where we live, where we go to school, who we hang out with, what we make, where we work, who we're married to, what our kids do or don't do. You name it. We wear all these things to protect us from experiencing others, especially if their lives are really different from ours. It's too vulnerable. So we hide our fears behind these masks and we keep ourselves distant from others and from the God who loves us. Now, God knows you can't wash feet that still have socks and shoes on them. And you can't rescue broken people without getting a little dirty yourself. The incarnation was a vulnerable move on God's part. Setting the worship-worthy godness to the side to walk dusty streets and sit at tables with messy people. It's that same vulnerability that moves Jesus to take up the towel and wash the dirty feet of these 12 angry men. It's how we see who God is to us. And it's how we see who we are to God. You know, I thought about this for a while, and I think it's Jesus' confidence in who he is and his relationship with God that gives him the ability to be so radical. It's freedom, really. To do the thing that nobody else wants. To appear weak by serving in the lowliest ways. Because his identity isn't tied up into other people's perceptions, but to his relationship with God. And that alone. He knows who he is. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going, and he knows what he's about. And that gives him incredible freedom. It's true for us, isn't it? Don't we know who we are, who we've been sent from, where we're going, what we're about? When we're most aware of how well-loved we are, we're most free to, to love others without fear. But what does that mean? I think it means that we don't have to be afraid that we have different opinions about politics or the economy or worship. We don't need to fear if somebody else gets better grades or makes more money or lives in a nicer house or drives a car that works. We don't need to fear that others know our insecurities or our brokenness or our diseases, our failures and our griefs. Jesus' love for us redefines everything. And as God loves the fear out of us, 
We move from being a ragtag group of misfits, sort of the island of misfits toys in the kingdom of God, to a community where love rules the day. Freed from the expectations of others, we're most Christ-like when we're most ourselves. We're most ourselves when we're most like Jesus. And the more we lean into that identity, the more, as God's beloved, the more we show up in broken places as hope givers, bringers of light, and of God's grace to a world that desperately needs to know it. Jesus came to make a way for us, and he's shown us that way. It's a way of a cross. It's a way of brokenness, of being poured out. And he sends us to lead and love until God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, in Christ, we belong to each other. You can't not have your family of origin is your family of origin. You can't really divorce your family. This is it. It's kind of fun. It's not always easy, though. So again, in the quiet of the space, I invite you both to thank God for those who have loved you to this place. And to bring before God those whom you would love to see in this place with you. Will you pray? You are loved. It's that love that brought you into this room and it's that love that's going to send you right back out. To enjoy the goodness of what God is up to in your life. He is fashioning you into the person that God is making you become like him, kind of Christ-like everywhere you go. A little messy, a little dirty, in process, totally, 100% in God's hands. That's good news. Amen. So go from this place knowing that the God that called you, the Christ that makes a way for you, and the spirit that leads you, will lead you from now until death from we're free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go in peace. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117